Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Talked last week about how to give time meaning we need a story. And so to redeem and re-enchant time, we need rhythms, rhythms to help us encounter the heavenly realm. Uh, consider the nature of faith described in the New Testament. Three passages here that I find of interest. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. A lot of Greek philosophy mixed in here, but that line, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Later on in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. And then the writer of Hebrews, what then is faith? It's what gives us assurance to our hopes. It's what gives us conviction about things we can't see. It's what the men and women of old were famous for. It's by faith that we understand that the worlds were formed by God's Word. In other words, that the visible world was made from the invisible. I think what these authors are describing here is what it means to live as citizens, like we talked about last week, of the heavenly dimensions, to fix our eyes on what is unseen, to walk by faith, not by sight, to gain conviction about the things we cannot see. But how do we do that? How do we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen? How do we walk by faith, not by sight? How do we gain conviction about the things we cannot see? Well, I would say this. We simply must hone our spiritual receptivity. And the trouble in our secular, cynical, wounded age is that we become almost blind to the heavenly world, this unseen dimension, this invisible world. We've lost our spiritual perceptivity. We've forgotten that beyond the material world, there is another world because we can't see it. And we've come to believe that the only way to perceive things is through our five senses, and I believe this is an idea we must unlearn. And I know that the moment you start talking about unseen realms, people are like, oh, this is getting a little bit weird. Uh, but I think we intrinsically understand this, even if it's just via the negative. So this week, I'm at home, somebody knocks on the door, it's my, my neighbor, and she's dropping off a bag of clothes for our kids, kind of past the clothes down thing. Open the door, and she's there, and she's like, hey, here's some clothes for your kids. And then she just stumbled over her words, and for a moment, I thought she was drunk. I was like, what's going on here? And she said, I'm so sorry, I just came from the mall and it just drained me, just being in the mall. And I was like, that's fascinating because I've had the same experience. You go into the mall and it's like, oh, just ooh, suck the energy from you. And it's weird because the moment you acknowledge anything as soul draining, you're acknowledging an unseen reality. Because if everything is just material, then there's no good reason why visiting the mall should not feel exactly the same as visiting a cathedral. 
But it is, and we know it is. We may not talk about it much, but we all understand there's an unseen dimension to life. Some spaces, though we can't see it, are draining. Others are perhaps life-giving. And I've come to believe, right, that there's all sorts of info and signs and evidence coming to us from heaven, but we won't be able to detect it with our senses alone, our eyes, ears, tongue, nose, hands. Have to learn to detect it by another sense. We might call it our heart, our soul, a sixth sense. In some ways, the materialist is a bit like saying, I, I, I won't believe there are smells because I can't taste it or hear it. I will not believe in aroma unless it can be heard. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not how you perceive aroma. Can't be perceived, this spiritual heavenly dimension. It cannot be perceived with the five senses. And so we need to develop, you, you could almost say, a spiritual sense. It's like when I say, Tim Hortons is the best coffee known to man. <laughs> yes, because... We chuckle because every serious coffee drinker, or so I'm told, is like, well, wait, that's because you haven't refined your coffee palate. Or if I were to say, you know what, wine, all wine is just unspoiled or spoiled grape juice. You'd be like, oh, gee, Junior, sit down. Um, you must refine your palate. You must refine your senses, hone and develop it. And in a similar way, I would say, walking by faith, becoming confident of the heavenly realm that we cannot see, it requires a honing of our spiritual receptivity. How do we do that? Well, if we're going to redeem time and live into the heavenly story, we need to add rhythm, rhythm to our time. Learn rhythm. Adolescence for me was um, a time of contrasting feelings. It was crippling insecurity mixed with unbridled confidence, and they would each show up at different times. And I remember I was very young, 14, something like that. We were at the church I was at. We were having a youth conference, 500 youth going to be coming in, and the worship band was practicing but this was the days where drums were, hmm, should we have drums? I don't know, should we have drums? But it was a youth conference, so it was edgy. And uh, I remember the worship leader saying, man, if we just had drums and a drummer. And I said, I can drum. Um, he said, really? I said, yeah. My brother played drums. He owned a drum set. It was there in the basement. I had never played the things, but I thought, how hard can it be? So I loaded up the drums, I brought them into, you know, the, the youth conference, uh, we practiced, I didn't, after practice, I didn't get any affirmation, right? Like, hmm, that's strange, huh. lug these in, no affirmation, interesting. The youth conference began, and I remember it was Shine Jesus Shine was the opener, and I had it. You know, I got the basic, but then, you know, Shine Jesus Shine, there's that part where it changes to, bum, 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 you know what I'm... Does everybody remember Shine Jesus Shine? You know what I'm talking about. So I'm holding the basic rhythm, and then it goes in the chorus, bum, bum, and I just lost it and stopped playing. And there's 500 people looking at me like, what happened to the drummer? And I was like trying to make it look like this was intentional. Don't worry, I'm coming back in. Boom, back in. 
and I just kept getting more nervous and nervous, and it started happening about every 30 seconds, and the opening set was four songs, and I could see the worship leader looking at me like, you're killing us. I'm like, I'm trying my best, but I really shouldn't have said I play drums when I don't. Every 30 seconds, I just lose time, or anytime there's supposed to be a drum roll, I'm like, don't, don't, ah, I lost it. Just stop, stop. Didn't have rhythm. I hadn't developed the skills to be able to keep time, keep rhythm. Maybe I could do some basic things, but it was embarrassing. I didn't get any praise after either. It was bizarre, strange thing. Rhythm. Life is full of rhythm. Everything is about rhythm. Daily rhythm of sunset, sunrise. Seasonal rhythms. Heading into winter, spring, summer, fall, lunar rhythms seen in the cycles of the moon. The things we consider most beautiful in life generally have rhythm. Art is rhythm. Dance is rhythm. Music is rhythm. Poetry is rhythm. Human body itself is full of rhythm. Our syncopated heartbeats and the way that we breathe all about rhythm. But in our culture today... The cult of speed, there is no rhythm. In the age of hurry, everything is about speeding up. There's no rhythm. Just speed up. I mean, consider the phenomenon of jet lag alone, right? Anyone traveled overseas recently? Jet lag, what an awful feeling that is, right? Jet lag is the general malaise that we experience that comes from moving so fast through space that the body cannot keep up. Body cannot keep up. Your own body is out of rhythm. You can't keep up with where the sun is. Jet lag, it isn't just fatigue. It's deeper than that. It's a sensation of everything being completely out of sync. And in the cult of speed, I would say we're collectively suffering from a cultural jet lag. But to redeem time in the cult of speed, we're going to have to recover rhythm the Old Testament Solomon, this is at the dedication of the new temple, he utters these words to the Hebrew people. May God, our very own God, continue to be with us just as he was with our ancestors. May he never give up and walk out on us. May he keep us centered and devoted to him, following the life path he has cleared, watching the signposts, walking at the pace and rhythms he laid down for our ancestors. Pace and rhythm. Of our ancestors. Last week we talked about Sabbath rhythm, weekly rhythm of rest. And I really think this is the best place to start. It's doable, it's digestible. One day a week, we do nothing. And you can do this even if you have kids, even if you have kids, involve them in our rhythms. But as I've mentioned, Sabbath is, is really, I think, it's a gateway drug for reorienting time altogether. There are other rhythms that we can buy into. For instance, consider our calendar rhythms. Perhaps we could observe holy days, not just holidays. Uh, I've been, I'm fascinated with the church calendar. It was something that evolved over a long period of time. And even after the first two or three ecumenical councils of the history of the church, it wasn't sort of landed on. But generally, you could say this. For almost 2,000 years, the church has had the wisdom 
and creativity, I might add, to not mark time by the random calendar we follow, but by, to mark it by sacred holy time. The church has had the wisdom to say, in order for our calendars to have meaning, it needs to follow a story. And so the church calendar follows a story. And we're right on the cusp of it. Next week is the beginning of Advent. This is what the church calendar looks like, confusing maybe a little bit. Let me just walk you through it quickly. The best part of the calendar is how much ordinary time there is. Green is ordinary time. But the year actually starts first Sunday in December, next week. Walk through December and Advent, of course. It helps us anticipate the coming of Messiah. And then you have Christmas, and the best thing is we're like, oh, I love Christmas. In the, in the church calendar, it's 12 days long, not just one day. 12 days, you get to just, whoo, having fun, doing all the things. 12 days. Then Epiphany remembers the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. Then you've got a little bit of ordinary time. Then Lent remembers the solemn journey to the cross. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection. Then you've got Pentecost that marks the beginning of the, of the church. And then ordinary time leads us through the summer months, essentially. This is what it looks like this year. Those are the dates. You can see them. But essentially, half of the year is marked by a story. And we follow the church calendar very loosely here at Nexus, um, but I still think it has a way of giving story and rhythm to our calendar. Uh, no longer, when you follow the church calendar, you don't have to be that person who's always just waiting for the next long weekend. Oh, I just want to get to the next long weekend, have an extra day off. No, there's something sacred here about following the rhythm of a story. Then there's sacramental rhythms, right? What is a sacrament? We're about to observe Eucharist this morning. I think a good way to understand these rituals is to see them as a portal, earthly portal to heavenly participation. A sacrament, I, I would say this, is something that exists in both worlds. Now I'm getting all Harry Potter sci-fi here, but... It's a portal that exists in both worlds. The interesting thing is the idea that Eucharist was just a symbol is actually an idea that's only 500 years old. It was by Zwingli started the idea, Protestant Reformation. Um, and it is for sure a symbol, and it's not really hard to see the symbolism. Wine makes a good substitute for blood, bread for a body. Yes, but it's something deeper than that. It's a portal into heavenly participation into a different sort of time. And in this sense, Sunday mornings are not just about going to church. Rather, to do Eucharist is an expression of citizenship. I belong to a different calendar. We do it in order to give our calendars a deeper sense of time and rhythm. Prayer rhythms work the same way. It's a path, you could say, prayer is into the heavenly realm. Prayer is not a duty. It's venturing onto a path with the intention of discovering God. And here's the thing I would say. If you have to be convinced before you pray that prayer does something, you will never be convinced. You just have to walk the path. We walk by faith, not by sight. Consider it something like this. Okay, this is, this is a, a hike that I've done a number of times. I love it. I think it's one of the most beautiful Hikes in Canada. Moraine Lake, right? That's on one of our bills or 
something in Canada, a beautiful lake. But you can see in the, in, in the bottom right there, that's Consolation Lake. And there's a hiking trail that connects Moraine Lake over to Consolation Lake. And it's absolutely beautiful. And I can show you a path like this and tell you, you know what? If you're interested in seeing a grizzly bear in the wild, this is a good path to travel. It's a great path to travel. In fact, just this September, 20 hikers encountered two grizzly bears for 20 minutes, followed them down the path, which was great to be in a party of 20 when something like that happens. You don't want to be alone. But if you said, Brad, I want to encounter a grizzly bear, I can tell you, hey, this is a great path. You might encounter a grizzly bear. Now, mind you, I've walked it six times and not once have I seen a grizzly bear. But here's what I do know. If you want to encounter a grizzly bear, you will never do so from the confines of your hotel room in Banff. If you want to see a grizzly in the wild, you've got to walk the path. It's the same prayer. You say, if you want to encounter God, you're not going to encounter God in some deep mystical way every time you pray, but you certainly won't encounter God if we don't pray. You won't have deep divine moments or be able to sense and build your spiritual receptivity if we don't pray. And yet, I know us as a community, we're haunted and plagued by the question, what does prayer do? Um, hosted a little book club on Dale Allison's book, Encountering Mystery. I, this book was great, but the chapter on prayer was phenomenal. Take a few things here from Dale Allison. What does prayer do? Well, just on a purely, hmm, what does it do for me personally? Dale Allison says this. According to the 2008 Survey of Religious Belief and Practices in the UK, prayer leaves people feeling reassured or hopeful, peaceful or content, strengthened, unburdened or released, close to God, guided, loved, humbled, and happy or joyful. Only a distinct minority, 18%, report feeling the same after prayer as before. Well, one well-known study found daily prayer to be more effective than psychotherapy for dealing with emotional distress. And according to a 2008 survey conducted by the American Psychological Association, 77% of those who pray judge this act to surpass massage, exercise, meditation, and yoga as the most effective stress management activity. When people say to me, prayer does nothing, I go, stop being silly. Stop being silly. We know it does something. You say, maybe it's all in your brain. Maybe, but it does something. It's practical. But that's on our end, right? And here's the thing. Me telling you about the personal benefits of prayer will never convince anyone to pray. But the idea that it does nothing, well, it's just we know it's not true. You say, well, what should prayer look like? And this is the encouraging thing about this book. It's Dale Allison, it's a, he did a whole study on prayer. He says, careful, systematic investigation would confirm that creative diversity is everywhere. For every hundred people who heed the simple injunction to pray, there may be, because the imagination is in charge, a hundred different ways of responding. The most affecting practice I have run across comes from a former student. She says that she sees shoulders as well as faces. This allows her in her imagination to pick up a warm shawl and place it on the shoulders of those she's praying for. This is her daily ritual. Dale Allison gets into all these interesting things about how we pray is affected by culture. And today, you know, a lot of people pray in their mind by like scrolling. So it's like, oh, there's Kristen, pray for her, scroll. There's Huxley. There's a... Our imagination shapes the way we pray. But 
the diversity of what that looks like, I think a lot of us get nervous. I don't know how to pray. Use your imagination. For some people, it doesn't even involve words. It's just there's a picture of someone, and I'm just going to place a shawl on them. We still might ask, but come on, what does it do? And um, Allison's book put me in touch with, uh, I love that there's, he talks about four different groups of people or four camps and what they believe about prayer. Personally, I would reject the first two. They're very familiar to me, but his last two were fascinating. He talked about the third group of people and their approach to prayer was novel to me. And it's similar to this. I think a few years ago, even if we didn't know the book, or read the book, we all heard in the news or podcast about this book, The Hidden Life of Trees. And I think many of us thought, oh, this is a fascinating idea. The idea was that underground in the root system, trees communicate with each other. They're able to, oh, there's disease coming in the forest, and somehow, now, listen, I didn't read the book. I have no idea how Tree Guy knows this, but I think it was scientific or something. I don't know, but it was all of a sudden all over the news and in podcasts, trees communicate with each other underground in ways that we cannot see. And there's a certain group of people that liken this to prayer. John Hick is one of those people. He says this about prayer. We are all linked at a deep unconscious level in a universal network in which our thoughts and even more our emotions are all the time affecting others as others are in turn affecting us. When in prayer or meditation we direct our thought to our particular individual, this is intensified. I love this. Once you start to internalize and maybe believe that there's another dimension of reality beyond our material world that opens the doors to many possibilities. Trees communicate mysteriously with each other underground, away from what can be seen. Is it possible that the world of prayer connects us in the heavenly realm with one another where our thoughts, our petitions, our emotions... They kind of affect us in a universal network of some way. I don't know. It's mysterious. I'm intrigued by that idea. I like it, but even still at the end of the day, I find myself in um, Dale Allison's fourth camp of people, uh, which he belongs as well. He sums it up this way. I wish I had written this. It sums up my own feelings and experiences in prayer. He says this, Many of us who pray are confused. My prayers, and those of so many others, were, despite their great number and sincerity, unmercifully unanswered. And anyone who piously hazards the contrary that God answer our prayers just not as we envisioned is playing with words in order to deny the self-evident. Dispiriting and brutal facts repeatedly demonstrate, if we can admit the obvious, that God is not in the business of invariably or even regularly giving us what we ask for. Yet, I remain confident about prayer. Because I truly believe in God that I am heard, but I have no assurance of anything beyond that. The relationship between the supreme being and our prayers is a mystery to me. To pretend otherwise, to pretend that I have a clear and distinct idea about the matter would be dishonest. But still, how could I ever cease to pray and hope for those I love or for the broken world around me? Although I affirm that God acts in the world and that our prayers count for something, I do not know how to connect the two things in part because I have no lucid idea as to how I might identify an act of God. That's where I 
set. At the end of the day, it's a mystery, it's a tension, and there's, there's no real way to resolve it because it's precisely the point of what the New Testament is talking about. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're looking for things that are unseen, not seen. We walk not by understanding and clarity, but in mystery. And a rhythm of prayer brings us into the heavenly realm, and it's mysterious, but it ushers us there. And in that sense, it gives our days, our time, a sense of purpose or meaning. Another rhythm we need is a rhythm of wonder. Wonder. need to pay attention to wonder and awe. Places of sublime beauty, the ocean, mountains, deserts, they're powerful testaments, you could say, to the heavenly realm, the heavenly dimension. And it doesn't even need to be that dramatic. A small wood on the outskirts of town will often do. But we need reminders of awe and wonder. And when we encounter the sublime beauty of the natural world, what is that feeling? I know many of us have had it. What is that feeling? I want to name it. What is happening, I would say, is this. The heavenly realm is shining through the material world and speaking to your heart. You know, in Celtic Christianity, they understood this idea. And Celtic Christianity sort of evolved outside of the influence of the Roman Empire. And because it was outside the influence of the Roman Empire, it was much more mystical and mysterious. And they always believed, right, there's two dimensions. Heaven, earth, and then there are places, thin places, where those two realms are paper thin. The distance is paper thin. In these places, you could almost touch heaven. It's like it's right, it's right there. I can't quite see it, but I, but I can almost. This makes sense, I think, for a lot of us in terms of nature, mountains, deserts, oceans. But there's also buildings, human-made structures. And I'm often humbled, and, and, and I love this community because there's always different ideas and challenging ideas. And, and Todd and Melissa are two people that fascinate me because I'll be like, hey, I went to the mountains. It was amazing. They're like, I have zero interest in ever going to the mountains. I just want to walk around cities and that sort of stuff. And it's got me thinking, why is it that some people are attracted to oceans, mountains? Some people like man-made, human-made architecture. What, what is that about? Some human buildings like the mall or Walmart, they do nothing for us. In fact, they might drain our soul. But that's not the case for all buildings. In fact, some buildings move us deeply. I've been pondering on this. Here's my theory. What makes a building a thin space? Two things, I would say. Purpose and history. Why... Does the mall drain us? Well, what's its purpose? To rob you. Its whole purpose is you come in and give us your money so you can have a temporary, ooh, that feels good to buy something. Then you're like, that was probably, I really didn't need to buy that. Its whole purpose is to rob you. And what about its history? Well, most of our malls around here will be, what, in the 70s? It's got like 30 years, 50 years, (laughs) losing track of time here. What year are we in? But then there are other buildings, and I can, I can tell you exactly how to identify a thin place building. When you walk into it, people will begin to whisper. 
they lower their voice. Hush tones. I've come to think if the purpose of a building is for worship or to house and showcase beauty, goodness, or truth, that building over time will start to wear itself into a thin place and everyone senses it. Everyone knows. I've told the story before. I'll, 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 I'll skip the part about me stopping a purse thief, but I, I, I was a hero at one point. But I was in Paris in the subway. I stopped somebody, robbed a, a, a lady of her purse. Anyway, I stopped them. Well, me and some other bigger people, but I stopped them. But it was worked up. And I got out of the subway system and I walked into Notre Dame Cathedral with my friend. And immediately, a hush. And I could sense something. You know, when Notre Dame burnt down and we watched it on TV, like it, it, it moved me emotionally because, you know, they just tore down Walmart and Stanley Park Mall there. And the whole time I'm like, whatever, right? Like, just who cares? Like, it's a Walmart, but Notre Dame? Oh, something there. Its purpose was, was for worship and the history behind it. It's interesting. Kristen has a coworker right now. She's, she's um, not a person of faith, but she's decided this, this spring she's going to walk the uh, Camino de Santiago and how many cathedrals are along that route. And I have never heard a single person come back from walking that going, huh, it was a stroll. No. Something deeper. Museums can be this because what's their purpose? To house beauty. Um, often it's, it's crowded, right? But you find yourself a, a quiet little nook in a museum and in fact, I would say this. We actually have a thin space building right here in Kitchener, the library. And it's not all the time. I tend to find, actually, this is the perfect time of year when it gets dark early. In the evening, it's quiet. If you walk in and go up to the second floor and take a seat among the books, you don't even have to read. Just sit there in the books and you'll feel it. Why? What's the purpose of the building? To house human knowledge and creativity. There's a feeling there. I think if a building was created with the purpose of worshiping God or if it was built for the purpose of, of housing beauty, truth, and goodness, and if that building starts to have a history behind it, you can encounter heaven there. And so to redeem and re-enchant time, we need rhythms that allow us to encounter wonder and awe. And without these moments and rhythms, we're at risk of time becoming flat and static to us. Our only mandate ever being just to speed up, speed up, speed up. But I thought I would end this, this teaching very practically. Let's talk about time and our calendars. Big family meaning calendar talk, shall we? Because what I'm convinced of this, if you aren't intentional about your calendar, if you aren't intentional about how you fill your time, it will fill up with things that are not that important. As the old parable goes, right? You got a glass, what do you fill it up with first? The highest priorities, the stones. Because if you don't, the sand and the pebbles, you know, if you fill up with sand and pebbles and less important things first, you'll never find the space for what's important. 
So let's be brutally honest with our calendar, shall we? And I'm just going to tell you what I think this looks like for me, rhythm and time-wise. You can take it or leave it. But here's what I would say. Daily rhythms. Pray every day. Every day, even if it's five minutes. And use your imagination. It doesn't have to be just... Who comes to mind? Take ourselves into that space. Weekly rhythms for me, I want to be in a thin place, the forest, or a building like the library once a week. Needs to be once a week for me. Service once a week. Do something for somebody besides you or your family once a week. And it doesn't have to be big. Just get out of your own way, right? Like just, mm, it's so easy for a calendar to be like, oh, I'm so just me and my family and we're stressed out. Just do something for somebody else. And some of you, that's baked into your calendars. Sabbath, once a week, 24 hours. No laundry, no dishes, no work. Put that in your calendar. Get it in there. Go ahead. Do it. Here's the thing. We never put these things in our calendar. Noon Saturday to noon Sunday. Off. Now, here's an awkward one. Let's talk about church rhythms. Or I've subtitled this, What Sundays to Skip If I Must. Never talk about that here, but let's talk about it. It'd be a little bit awkward. But let me give you an insight into the things that Kristen and I actually fight about often tell you stories of the things they're not really that serious but this one fight happens every single year and I always lose but every single year it happens late July August she'll say to me um Brad I have a triathlon and it's the first Sunday back at Nexus is it okay if I skip that Sunday and do my triathlon and every year I am like no that's not fine. It's our first Sunday back. We've got to be a good example. We need to be here. And then she kindly reminds me of all the things she does for Nexus, like serving in Nexus kids this morning, and da-da-da-da-da. And eventually I say, I'm sorry. Go ahead and take that Sunday and do your triathlon. But for most of my life, I've operated under every Sunday. should be at church. It's a good rhythm. But that's not the way we do church, Right? There are things that come up. So I've been thinking about this. What would it look like to be intentional about what weeks we skip? And I've intentionally put this teaching right before Advent because if I put it in September, I wouldn't see the rest of you for the fall. But here's how I would put it in. Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, I'd put in green. Sunday morning, church, I'm going to church. But May to November is ordinary time. We're not telling the grand story. So, eh, you need, eh, you got a triathlon, you got something, mm, maybe that's an okay time to skip church. But then I would go to the last Sunday of every month and I would make it purple. And I would say, ah, this is no ordinary Sunday, it's Eucharist Sunday. That Sunday I can't miss. Because I can't miss the portal. I need that. So then I'd be like, okay, May to November, eh, maybe. Last Sunday of every month, there was Eucharist. I don't want to miss that. And then I would put in my calendar December to May, blue. Be like, hey, that's the time of year where we tell the story. Church tells the story, the Jesus story. Huh, I don't want to be, 
I don't want to be absent for that. That's the, that's the big thing. And here's the thing. There's been a lot of talk over the past decade as to why do people stop going to church? There's all these people are deconstructing. There's been so much abuse in the church, corruption, historical sins. Those are all reasons, but they are not the reason people don't go to church. Atlantic had a great article, Why So Many Americans Have Stopped Going to Church. And here's both the tragedy in my mind and the comedy of the situation. Adults can hold tension. We do it all the time. People don't stop going to church because of abuse or doubting their faith or that they're troubled by historical sins. That's not actually why people stop going to church. You know why people stop going to church? Because they're busy. Because they're busy. And the tragedy, in my mind, as a pastor, clearly I'm biased here, the tragedy of the situation is it's not even interesting busyness. It's nothing interesting. People aren't missing church because they're doing something interesting. It would be one thing if someone's like, hey, why don't you go to church Sunday mornings? Well, I'm practicing having tantric sex every Sunday morning, so there's that. Or, you know, every Sunday morning I feed the homeless. Or, you know, I got this art project. I'm going to photograph every Mennonite buggy in the Waterloo region. Or, you know what, I'm taking Sunday mornings off to read the Russian classics. I've been in ministry this coming Sunday for, for 20 years. I've never heard anyone tell me anything remotely interesting about why they don't go to church Sunday mornings. Here's what it actually is. Well, I'm, I might go shopping, or I've got chores to catch up on, or sports, or YouTube, or video games. A little uncomfortable, but it's never anything interesting. And this is the interesting side note here. I can't wait to see Napoleon. I haven't seen it. But did you know that during the French Revolution, the atheistic revolutionaries, they implemented for 12 years the French Republican calendar. It was a calendar with a 10-day week instead of seven. And it only lasted for 12 years, 1793 to 1805. It didn't work or last long. But this new calendar was adopted in large part to cause people to forget Sunday and to help people forget Christianity. Because what the French revolutionary atheists knew was this, if you get people to forget how important Sundays are, they'll forget how important faith is. If you can get people to forget the weekly rhythm of Sabbath, of Sunday, faith will fail. It didn't work back then because what they didn't know is that we didn't need a new calendar, we just needed a busier one. So, church rhythms, there's an idea. Made in November, ah, I got a triathlon or some shopping to do. Okay, but what about prioritizing Eucharist Sundays in December to May, the church calendar? And besides rhythms, church rhythms, weekly rhythms, prayer rhythms, we also need rhythms of For me, it's quarterly. Quarterly, I need something. But at least annually, I would say this. Be intentional about finding those places that take your breath away and reduce you to whispering tones. Go to places that hush you. And it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be a privileged thing. I tell you, if you travel up just to Bruce Peninsula, that's just a car ride up there, you walk those trails, you'll be hushed. 
you'll be hushed. I'm going to ask the band to come, and, you know, the thing is, we spend a lot of time talking about faith here, but I actually think one of the things we need to talk more about is our calendar, because the cult of speed is a cult. It's a religion, and in this cult and religion, the God of speed will never stop demanding more and more and more from you. This cult will chew you up and spit you out, but there's a way to resist. There's a way out. There's a way to redeem and re-enchant our sense of time. It is possible. There's another way, but it means learning rhythm. Matthew 11, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace.